This episode is dedicated to Gabrielle S. and Dante G. for the donations they made to the podcast. In the past, we have seen multiple donations from one Gabriel S., but this isn't the same person. The last name is different, and the first name ends with an E, so I believe this donor is female. Forgive me if I am wrong, misgendering has become a serious matter in recent years. As for Dante G., you know him if you have listened to recent episodes, because he donated in response to them too. In fact, this is his fourth donation so far. Way to go! Here in the United States, the weather has been stormy, to say the least. Tornadoes have struck many places in recent months, and currently about a third of the country is experiencing a heat wave. Where I live, we had fierce windstorms at the beginning of March and the beginning of July that blew down mighty trees, some of which were hundreds of years old. Therefore, I wish fair weather on both Gabrielle and Dante. May the sun, rain, and breezes you experience all be pleasant, and may they help you in your work, not hinder it, just as a tailwind can help a sailboat quickly reach its destination. And now let us move on to our feature presentation. Hello, you have found the History of Southeast Asia podcast. I am your host, Charles Kimball. Episode 128, Komodo and Flores, or Here Be Dragons and Hobbits. Greetings, dear listeners, for the 128th time from the hills of bluegrass country in Kentucky. Before we get started with today's material, I have an update for you. You may remember that back in episode 122, I said that David Tran, the inventor of sriracha sauce, was a refugee from Vietnam who fled to California in 1979. I also said the sriracha sauce factory in California was closed due to last year's drought causing a shortage of hot peppers, the main ingredient for the sauce. Well, because of the record-breaking amounts of rain and snow California has gotten over the past winter, the factory is open again, but there is still a hot pepper shortage. And since demand for the condiment now exceeds the supply, the price of sriracha is going up. And up. And up. I checked the website for Walmart, an American store that is supposed to sell all kinds of products cheaper than their competitors. And currently, 
They want $34.50 for a bottle of sriracha sauce. And that's not a jug, where you measure the contents in liters or gallons. That's the standard 9-ounce bottle, the one with a green cap and a picture of a rooster on it, that fits fine on any dining table. If Walmart wants more than $30 per bottle, imagine what the other stores are charging. Now reports are coming from the city of San Francisco, claiming that people are stealing the bottles from stores and restaurants, now that the sauce is unaffordable for a lot of consumers. For what it's worth, when I told my wife about the sriracha shortage, she didn't react like she did when I told her about the expensive onions in her homeland, the Philippines. She just said that she still prefers good old Louisiana hot sauce. No surprise there. The Philippines is the only place I know of in Southeast Asia that doesn't pile on the spices. But enough about sriracha. Where are we with the podcast? Longtime listeners know that I finished the general historical narrative around the beginning of 2022, and that narrative is on hiatus until we get enough current events from Southeast Asia to fill another episode. In the meantime, I am doing episodes about other subjects that interested you, the listeners, like an episode about ASEAN the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. In case you are joining us for the first time, for the past four episodes, we have been doing a mini-series of sorts, visiting the islands of eastern Indonesia. We are doing this because when the podcast talked about all of Indonesia, most of the attention was given to three big islands in the west. Sumatra, Java, and Borneo. So this is an effort to give equal time to the rest of the country. So far, we covered the island of Bali in episode 124, Sulawesi in episode 125, Lombok in episode 126, and Sumbawa in episode 127. In the process, we have been following the chain of islands in the southeastern part of Indonesia called the Lesser Sundas, going from west to east. After Sumbawa, the next major island is Flores. I told you in the previous episode that a ferry boat shuttles between Sumbawa and Flores. There are also seven airports scattered across Flores. However, Garuda, the main airline of Indonesia, does not fly to Flores. If you choose to fly, you will have to take one of the smaller Indonesian airlines from a city like Jakarta. If you thought Flores does not sound like a name from an Indonesian language, you're right. The first Europeans to visit the island were a Portuguese expedition which made landfall on the island's eastern Cape Copandai in 1511. 
They saw trees covered with brilliant orange-red flowers. Nowadays, those trees are called royal poinsettias. I saw royal poinsettia trees when I lived in Florida, and they are gorgeous. Because of that, the Portuguese named that landfall Cabo de Flores, or the Cape of Flowers. Of course, the name was later shortened to just Flores, and applied to the whole island. Previously, the natives had called the island Nusa Nipa, which means Snake Island. By coincidence, Florida got its name the same way. The Spanish explorer who discovered Florida also saw lots of flowers when he arrived. I don't know why the Dutch, and later today's Indonesian government, kept the Portuguese name for Flores, but what the heck? Finally, in the Atlantic Ocean, one of the Azores is also named Flores. Don't confuse that island with the one in Indonesia. The two largest towns of Flores are Ende, on the south coast, near the center of the island, and Maumere, which is on the north coast and farther east. The west end of the island is part of Komodo National Park, and the west end also has a fishing village, Labuan Bajo, that tourists find appealing. Between the two large islands of Sumbawa and Flores are several smaller islands. The rest of the national park encloses those small islands and the waters between them, which is part of the Flores Sea. The park gets its name from the largest island in it, Komodo, which has an area of only 150 square miles, or 388.5 square kilometers. Unlike most Indonesian islands, Komodo is not covered by jungle, but is relatively dry. The vegetation here is mostly savanna and scrub bushes. The next largest islands are named Padar and Rintja. The rest of the islands, 26 of them, are little more than rocks above the surface of the sea. On a map, they look like fly specks. Before we see the sights on Flores, we will go into Komodo National Park and the best place for a tour of that park to start is at Labuan Bajo. If you are ready to see what makes this national park special, let's go! Indonesia is home to many strange animals, some of which were only discovered recently. Along that line, when I heard in 2007 that a giant rat was discovered in western New Guinea, I remembered reading The Lost World, 
a science fiction story written more than a hundred years ago, by Arthur Conan Doyle. The story was about a plateau in the South American jungle that was the home of dinosaurs and cavemen. So I declared that Indonesia is the real lost world. Perhaps the most famous of Indonesia's exotic creatures is the Komodo dragon, the world's largest lizard. If you have heard of this reptile, the name of Komodo Island is familiar to you. For those of you who did not know about the Komodo dragon, this creature is an oversized monitor lizard growing up to 3 meters, or 10 feet long, and weighing up to 140 kilograms, or 300 pounds, making it as big as the American alligator. In prehistoric times, the dragons were even larger. Fossils of them have been found on nearby islands and in Australia that are as much as 7 meters, or 23 feet long. Also like alligators, their teeth and claws can do some serious damage, and even the tail makes a formidable defensive weapon. On top of all that, their saliva is mildly poisonous. A few zoos have Komodo dragons. The nearest zoo to me with one is in Cincinnati. But in the wild, you can only find them on four Indonesian islands. Komodo dragons are apex predators. The only creatures that are dangerous to them are humans. They eat an all-meat diet. If their mothers told them to eat their veggies, they didn't listen. Food for them includes anything they can catch. Deer, pigs, goats, water buffalo, monkeys, and sometimes even horses and smaller Komodo dragons. Because of the last item, baby Komodo dragons live in trees until they are four years old to stay out of reach of their big relatives. But most of the time they are carrion eaters, eating any dead animal they can find. Like snakes, they will wave a forked tongue in the air to smell their surroundings and this is the easiest way for them to find food. If an animal escapes after being bit by a dragon, the poisonous bite may still kill it slowly, and the dragon will patiently follow its prey until it can catch up and eat it, finishing it off first if necessary. When they do find a meal, they can swallow up to 80% of their weight in meat so you don't see them hunting as often as you might expect. After a really big meal, they can go for up to a month before they have to eat again. Attacks on people are rare, but they will happen if the dragons get the opportunity. According to data from Komodo National Park, from 1974 to 2012, there were 24 reported attacks on people five of them fatal. Most of the humans attacked are villagers who live around the national park. The most notorious case happened in 2007, when an eight-year-old boy went behind a bush to go to the bathroom 
and a dragon ambushed him and bit him in half. It is estimated that there are between 3,000 and 5,000 Komodo dragons alive today. When I was a kid, there were around 1,000 of them, but they are still considered an endangered species. The main threats to them are climate change, habitat loss, and a shortage of prey, due in part to people moving on to their islands. The largest dragon population is on Komodo, of course. There is also a population of dragons on the tiny island of Rintja, and communities of dragons in a few spots on the western and northern coast of Flores. That is why the park boundaries extend to include part of Flores. The island of Padar used to have some, but none have been seen since 1975, so it is believed they all died out. Finally, Komodo dragons have been introduced to a fifth island, Gili Motong. There are an estimated 100 dragons living there now. In 1980, the government of Indonesia declared the creation of Komodo National Park to protect them. Besides the Komodo dragon, the park is also a refuge for the orange-footed scrub fowl, a local species of rat, and the Timor deer. And the waters between the islands contain coral reefs, more than a thousand species of fish, and various sponges, dugong or manatees, whale sharks, manta rays, whales, dolphins, and sea turtles. Before the 20th century, no outsiders had seen a Komodo dragon, so the Dutch did not know about them when they took over the Indonesian islands. However, as the 20th century began, Dutch sailors who visited Flores spread rumors about a dragon, or land crocodile, in the vicinity. Supposedly, the animal was seven meters long, that's 23 feet again, and breathed fire, keeping anyone from getting close to it. Some of the sailors also believed it could fly. In other words, they expected the dragon to be just like the dragons of fantasy stories and mythology, like Smaug in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. In 1910, Lieutenant Jacques Carroll Henry Van Stein Van Hensbroek, a Dutch colonial official stationed on Flores, heard these rumors and went to the island of Komodo with a team of soldiers to investigate. After a few days, Van Hensbroek and his team killed a lizard that was almost seven feet long and brought it back to headquarters. The skin and a photograph were sent to Peter Ovens, the director of the Zoological Museum and Botanical Gardens on Java, and Ovens subsequently recruited a hunter to bring him more specimens. With this evidence, Ovens published the first reliable paper on the Komodo dragon in 1912, 
revealing that in one part of the world, dragons are real. Ovens also gave the lizard its scientific name, Varanus komodoensis. The Dutch government responded by issuing a regulation on the protection of Komodo Island and the lizards on it in 1915. The next major expedition to Komodo was led by an American naturalist, William Douglas Burden, in 1926. Burden was a great-grandson of William Henry Vanderbilt, who was the richest man in America during the 1880s. So he got the American Museum of Natural History to approve the expedition by paying the expedition's expenses with his own money. He would coin the lizard's common name of Komodo Dragon. His wife came along as well, and at one point she had a close encounter with a dragon. When she got between it and an animal carcass that had been put out as bait, she only avoided being attacked by the dragon when another expedition member shot it in the neck. The expedition would bring back 12 preserved specimens and two live ones to New York City. The live dragons were given to the Bronx Zoo, but they died soon afterwards. Today you can see three of the dragon skins, mounted and stuffed, in the American Museum of Natural History. The story of the expedition appeared in the August 1927 issue of National Geographic magazine. Burden also wrote a book about it in the same year, entitled Dragon Lizards of Komodo, An Expedition to the Lost World of the Dutch East Indies. Sometime after that, Burden told the story to a movie producer, Marion C. Cooper. Cooper was inspired by this story of an expedition with a prominent female member that went to a remote island in Indonesia and came back to New York with a giant prehistoric creature. Cooper made the story into a movie, but changed the animal from a giant lizard to a giant ape and replaced Burden's wife with a beautiful actress. Fay Ray. And that is how someone got the idea for the classic 1933 movie, King Kong. Komodo Island is the real life version of Skull Island. Finally, and this is a personal interest of mine, a few years later, in 1938, Burden became a co founder and president of Marineland the first aquarium park in Florida. Because of World War II and the Indonesian National Revolution, further expeditions to Komodo Island could not take place until after 1950. The most important of these expeditions was led by an American biologist, Walter Alfenberg. Alfenberg's family and his Indonesian assistant, Putra Sastrawan, stayed on Komodo Island for 11 months in 1969 
where they captured and tagged more than 50 Komodo dragons. This and other recent expeditions extensively studied the dragon's behavior, and that is why today's zoos are able to keep alive the dragons they have now. Aside from the dragon, just a few words will cover the rest of the information I could find about Komodo Island. As of 2020, about 1,800 people live there. Many of them are descendants of criminals who were exiled here in the 19th century. From the Sultanate of Bima, on the neighboring island of Sumbawa. The rest are members of the Bugis tribe, who immigrated from Sulawesi. We have a report from 1846, where a Dutch resident of West Timor told of pirates active around Komodo. They would attack the north coast of Sumba Island and capture the inhabitants to sell them into slavery. Finally, the coral reefs off the coast of Komodo provide some great places for diving, and the island contains a beach with sand that is colored Pepto-Bismol pink. This is one of the only seven pink beaches in the world. The color comes from bits of red coral combined with white sand. Now let us move on from Komodo back to Flores, the next important island in the Lesser Sunda chain. Flores occupies an area of 15,530 square kilometers. That's 5,996 square miles for you American listeners. And it is a long, thin island, 220 miles long, by 41 miles wide. So unlike Komodo, you can see it on most maps of Southeast Asia. The latest population figure I could find for Flores is from 2021, when it was estimated that the population was 1,897,550. This means Flores is the 10th largest island in Indonesia and it also has the 10th largest population of any Indonesian island. The best time to visit Flores is during July and August. This is the middle of the dry season, and the island's most pleasant weather comes at this time. The island's interior has not been completely explored, and the rivers cannot be navigated. So the easiest way to get across the island is by following the Trans-Flores Highway, a 670-kilometer or 419-mile-long road that runs from the west to east end of the island. Warning, despite the name, the road is not a modern highway. It is a two-lane road most of the way and was built by the Dutch in 1926. Parts of the road have curves, a steep incline, and potholes that can be treacherous to outsiders. Most of the island's vegetation consists of either tropical deciduous forest or savanna. Travel guides recommend spending two weeks on Flores. 
The island is big enough that you won't run out of things to see and do in that time. Like the other islands we have visited in the Lesser Sundas, Flores has attractive beaches, diving and snorkeling sites, traditional villages, and active volcanoes. Fourteen active volcanoes. More than any other island except for Java and Sumatra. You're at the heart of the Pacific Ring of Fire when you visit Flores. More evidence of volcanic activity comes in the form of black sand beaches and two hot springs near the village of Moni. The hot springs are considered sacred by the people who live nearby, but it's okay to take a dip in them. One spring is marked as a bathing area for men, the other for women. Regarding the volcanoes, don't worry, a major eruption is not expected from them anytime soon. Like the eruptions I told you about from the volcanoes on Lombok and Sumbawa. In fact, if you are in shape and have the time, you will probably want to take a hiking trail to the summit of at least one volcano. The five volcanoes on Flores that are worth a hike are Mount Kelimutu, Mount Renaka, Mount Ebulobo, Mount Ea, and Mount Inieri. Of the five, Mount Kelimutu, the mountain of the three colored lakes, is the most interesting because on top of the mountain are not one, but three crater lakes, and they're not the same color. What's more, the lakes change color from time to time. On a typical day, one lake can be red, another can be green, and the third can be blue. The lakes have also been known to turn brown, white, or even black. According to geologists, the colors and changes are caused by chemical activity, as gases from the volcano are released into the lakes. Naturally, the tribe living next to Mount Kelimutu, the Leo, have spiritual beliefs connected with the volcano and the lakes. They believe that dead souls go to the lakes, with young souls going to one lake, old souls to another, and wicked souls to the third. Therefore, they leave offerings of pork, beetle nuts, rice, and other valuable items on rocks beside the lakes. And every year on August 14th, they perform a ceremonial dance called Feed the Spirit of the Forefathers. And Wikipedia has a picture of Indonesian money, a 5,000 rupiah banknote that features a picture of Mount Kelimutu on it. Don't worry, if you go to Indonesia and want a 5,000 rupiah bill as a souvenir, it won't be hard to get. In American money, 5,000 rupiahs is worth 34 cents. The Komodo dragon is not the only unusual animal on Flores. There is also the Flores giant rat. Twice as long as a regular brown rat, 
These rodents are as big as a raccoon or a Jack Russell Terrier. And that's not counting the tail. One of my sources said the only virtue of the Floris giant rat is that, unlike a mouse, it is too large to run up your pants leg. As far as I can tell, this is a different species from the rat recently discovered on western New Guinea. It has a different scientific name, anyway. The Floris rat is called Papagomis armandville, while the New Guinea rat has been added to the genus Malomis. Another feature of the Floris giant rat is that it may be endangered by human activity, specifically because people brought dogs and cats to the island. Currently, the rat is classified as a near-threatened species. Compare that with the rest of the world, where rats flourish in man-made environments, namely cities. For example, there is a third giant rat in the Philippines, the northern Luzon giant cloud rat. Biologists will tell you that when animal populations get isolated on an island, small animals may grow larger than normal, while large animals may grow smaller. This trend is called insularism, and Floris gives us several examples of it. So far, I have only talked about oversized animals that are alive now. But thousands of years ago, during the Ice Age, there were other giant or miniature creatures that eventually became extinct. Expeditions to Floris have found the bones of a six-foot-tall marabou stork, Leptopolis robustus, and an elephant the size of a pony. Stegodon florensis. The stegodon is also called a shovel tusk because its short trunk and elongated lower teeth give it a shovel shaped mouth. The current ideas about insularism are that animals isolated on an island will either grow smaller so they won't need to eat as much food or they will grow larger to dominate their diminished environment. So far, I haven't heard what factors determine the changes. I don't know how nature, or God if you prefer, decides when bigger is better, or when smaller is smarter. Manusia, manusia berkembang peradabannya hingga di mana-mana manusia. We have come to the most exciting discovery on Flores, and the reason why the animals on the island are generating so much interest. It looks like people have been affected by insularism as well. I talked about this all the way back in the earliest days of this podcast, in episode 1. Here is an updated version of what I said in 2016. Ahem! 
In 2003, a joint team of Australian and Indonesian archaeologists was looking on Flores for evidence of the prehistoric migration of humans from Asia to Australia. Flores was either on the path the ancestors of today's Aborigines would have taken, or very close to it. They looked in a huge cave named Liang Bua, meaning Cool Cave, and here they found a nearly complete skeleton of a woman who was probably 30 years old, but she was also remarkably small, 106 centimeters or 3 feet 6 inches. It was estimated that she lived about 80,000 years ago. Over the course of 2003 and 2004, bones from seven different individuals were found at the site. Liang Bua Cave also contained primitive stone tools and remains of the animals I have already mentioned on Flores. Komodo dragons, marabou storks, rats, bats, and stegodons. The discoveries were announced to the rest of the world in 2004. That's when I heard about it. Since then, more bones have been found, increasing the number of individuals represented to 14 or 15. All of them also came from Liang Bua Cave. Some suggested that these cavemen were merely ordinary humans with a disease or growth disorder, like microcephalia or Down syndrome. But subsequent studies of the bones have revealed too many similarities with other prehistoric humans, like Homo erectus. So this idea was discounted. It was also decided that they were too different from modern man to be considered Homo sapiens. Instead, they were declared a new hominid species and given a new name, Homo floresiensis. The tallest individual represented by the skeletons is only three foot seven. With the exception of dwarves and midgets, this makes them nearly a foot shorter than any other known human being. Even African pygmies average 4 feet 2 inches, so you can call these ultra-pygmies. Naturally, they have also been nicknamed hobbits, after the little people in J.R.R. Tolkien's stories. Their brains were no more than a third the size of modern man's brain, so it is unlikely they had our intelligence. Nevertheless. They used the stone tools mentioned a minute ago, hunted stegodons and giant rats for food, and they may have used fire, since some of the stegodon bones were charred. Nobody is suggesting that Homo floresiensis is any sort of ancestor to modern man, what we sometimes call a missing link. Currently, the bones are dated from 60,000 to 100,000 years ago, while the stone tools are dated from 50,000 to 190,000 years ago. 
This means the little florist man lived during the Ice Age. When land bridges connected florists with the islands to the west. Myself, I'm skeptical of that long range and dates, because we have only found a few specimens so far, and they all come from one site. We'll have to wait and see if more specimens turn up elsewhere. Currently, we have no evidence that they ever met other humans, like the ancestors of the Aborigines. So once they arrived on Floris, they would have had no competition from them. On an island where food is in short supply and no natural enemies exist, it isn't worth it to be big. That also explains why the island had stegodons instead of regular-sized elephants. Consequently, over the generations, Homo floresiensis could have shrunken to a more economical size. On other occasions, a very large creature, like the Galapagos tortoise, is found in an island environment, and these can be explained by those situations where being big enough to hold a territory is required to get food. One such animal may have given the little people their main challenge, the Komodo dragon. Hmm. Real-life hobbits and dragons? Sometimes truth is stranger than fantasy. Finally, there is the possibility that Homo floresiensis did not die out long ago. The same scientists who found Homo floresiensis looked into local legends, which suggest that modern Indonesians used to encounter them. The November-December 2004 issue of Archaeology magazine said this about the folklore. Quote, Villagers in Flores say that up until around 150 years ago, there were small, three-foot-tall, hairy people who used to steal food from them. Known as the Abu Gogos, literally the grandmothers who eat anything, they were tolerated by islanders until they stole a baby and ate it. Whether the Ebu Gogo is pure myth or an accurate recollection of Homo floresiensis is at present unprovable. The folklore material raises the real possibility that Homo floresiensis actually survived until sometime in the 19th century, said excavation member Bert Roberts, a geochronologist at the University of Wollongong, who conducted interviews with the villagers earlier this month. Indeed, there has to be a remote possibility that they still survive today in some remote jungle area of the island. On Flores, there have been no sightings of such creatures, at least potentially since the 19th century. However, on the same island chain, on the much larger island of Sumatra, to the west, there have in recent years been brief, as yet unpublished sightings, 
by a primatologist and others of a small, hairy, four-foot-tall, ape-like creature known to local tribesmen as Orang Pendek, literally, little person. Some zoologists suggest that a few hundred of them survive in the remote jungles of the Sumatran interior, but none have yet been captured or examined by scientists. End quote. Now, what else is interesting about Floris? Well, do you remember what I said in the previous episode about how easternmost Indonesia is a zone of transition between Southeast Asia and the South Pacific? Floris is probably the best place to see that transition because it is a long, skinny island. To start with, the indigenous population on Flores is a mixture of Malays and Melanesians who speak ten different languages. If you are a long-time listener, you will remember that Malays live in Malaysia, the Philippines, Brunei, and Indonesia, while Melanesians come from New Guinea and the southwest Pacific Islands. On Flores, there are more Malays in the west and more Melanesians in the east. To complete the picture, living on the coast are immigrants from other parts of Indonesia. There are Bimanese, Sumbanese, Sumbawanese, Buganese, Makassarese, Solarese, Minangkabau, and ethnic Chinese from Java. When it comes to religion, many of the residents on the coast are Muslim. But unlike most of Indonesia, they do not make up the majority of the island's population. The most widely practiced religion here is Roman Catholicism, thanks to the activity of Portuguese missionaries here in the 16th century. In a recent development, a Catholic university, St. Paul Catholic University of Indonesia, opened in Ruteng a town in western Flores, in 2019. And Larantuka, a town on the eastern end of the island, is known for elaborate festivals during Holy Week, the week before Easter. But despite the presence of Catholicism and Islam, some of the customs from the original animist religion are still practiced even today mainly in the inland villages. The most famous of these customs is a whip-fighting ritual, often performed at weddings. Flores earns a living from three sources, tourism, agriculture, and fishing. Of course, rice is grown here, but the most important crop is corn. 
called maize if you're not American. Other crops include coconuts, coffee, cacao, bananas, durians, jackfruit, papayas, vanilla, cloves, sweet potatoes, and cassava. When driving around Flores, you will smell cloves constantly, since we are getting close to the fabled Spice Islands, after all. Flores is also famous for a rock, a potent liquor distilled from palm sap. This tastes best when mixed with pineapple juice. For many villages, the farming area resembles a garden that is jointly owned and managed by the whole community. And only those living in the village know who owns each tree or branch. Likewise, a rice field may be divided into wedge-shaped segments, each worked by a single family, and that division makes the whole field look like a spider web from a distance. Despite this variety of food, however, most of the island's residents are poor and underfed. All right, since this is a history podcast, what do we know about the history of Flores? The oldest history we have from the island comes in the form of oral traditions from the traditional villages. Aside from the indigenous population, the first outsiders we know about came from the big islands to the west, between 1000 and 1500 AD. These were mainly Makassaris and Bugis from southern Sulawesi, and they sailed here to trade or capture slaves for their markets at home. I must assume that Flores came under the control of the Majapahit Empire, which was based on Java in the second half of the 14th century. Since maps I have found of Majapahit usually show it ruling all of Indonesia at its peak. However, I couldn't find any information on whether Majapahit directly ruled this island or just used its navy to exert its influence over it. I already mentioned that the first Europeans to visit Flores were a Portuguese expedition that arrived here in 1511. These were four ships, led by Antonio de Abreu and his vice-captain, Francisco Serrao, and they were looking for the source of Indonesia's spices. And if you're wondering, they would find the Spice Islands, today's Moluccas, in the following year. They also discovered New Guinea, but did not know how important this island would become. Portuguese traders followed, but Flores did not have resources that interested them. They ended up building a trading post on Solor, a small island on the east side of Flores, from which they controlled the sandalwood trade on a nearby island, Timor. More important to Flores were Portuguese missionaries, especially from the Dominican order who started coming here in the 1560s. As we saw earlier, they would eventually convert 
most of the inhabitants of Flores, to Catholic Christianity. Meanwhile, now that sailing across the seas was becoming safer and more commonplace, more Indonesians came here as well. Over the course of the 16th century, the kingdom of Bima, which was based on Sumbawa, see the previous episode, and the Sultanate of Ternati, in the Moluccas, claimed part of Flores for their realms. If you have listened to the previous episodes about Indonesia, you know the next big player to enter the game were the Dutch, and they started sailing to Indonesia just before 1600. In 1613, the Dutch attacked the Portuguese fortress on Solor, and the population in the fort fled to Larentuca, on Flores. Over the next few years, because the Portuguese in Larentuca did not know when, or if, they would ever return to Europe, they intermarried with local islanders and formed a mixed population which are called either Larentucaros or Topasus. The source for the latter name is obscure. The Dutch, in turn, called them Zavarte Portuguesen, meaning Black Portuguese. For the next 200 years, this community continued to dominate the sandalwood trade of eastern Indonesia. They spoke Portuguese as the language of worship, Malay as the language of trade, and a mixed dialect the rest of the time. In 1699, William Dampier, an English pirate, paid them a visit, and here is what he wrote about them. Quote, These, the Topasses, have no forts, but depend on their alliance with the natives. And indeed, they are already so mixed that it is hard to distinguish whether they are Portuguese or Indians. Their language is Portuguese, and the religion they have is Romish. They seem in words to acknowledge the King of Portugal for their sovereign, yet they will not accept any officers sent by him. They speak indifferently the Malay and their own native languages as well as Portuguese. End quote. Podcast footnote. I find William Dampier an extremely interesting character. When he wasn't making raids to support himself and his crew, he acted as a scientist and a scholar, conducting studies of his victims. Dampierre deserves to be the subject of a podcast episode. I'll do it if nobody else wants to talk about him. End footnote. The princes of Sulawesi also claimed control over Flores in the early 17th century, as we saw in episode 125. And though the Dutch broke their power in 1667, they did not step in to take their place. They were too busy in other parts of Indonesia. However, 
they did have an on-and-off struggle with the Portuguese. By 1769, most of the Portuguese in Indonesia had withdrawn to the one area they could keep, the eastern half of the island of Timor. Still, in Larantuka, even today, a lot of residents show their Portuguese ancestry with names like Da Silva and Da Sousa. In 1846, the Dutch and Portuguese began negotiations on establishing a permanent boundary between their territories in Southeast Asia. However, the issue was settled not by diplomats so much as by Lima Lopez, the new Portuguese governor of Flores, Solor, and Timor. This was a neglected province where the government was desperately short on cash. So in 1851, Lopez agreed to sell everything but Timor to the Dutch for a sum of 200,000 florins or guilders. Unfortunately, I could not find out how much this was worth in today's money. But it sounds like the Dutch got the better part of the deal. This transaction was done without the permission of Lisbon, and Lopez was dismissed in disgrace. But his agreement was not rescinded, and in 1854 it became official, when Portugal ceded all of its claims on Flores. Still, the Dutch did not get active on Flores at this time. That finally happened in 1907 when the Dutch launched a massive military campaign to end local rebellions and intertribal disputes. The invasion took until 1909, when all opposition was finally subdued. Afterwards, the Dutch divided Flores into five administrative districts, each run by a local leader who was appointed by the Dutch government. In early 1941, shortly before World War II came to Southeast Asia, the Dutch had eight brigades of troops on Flores, four in Larantuka and four in Endi. However, in December, when it became clear that Japanese forces would attack the Dutch East Indies, these forces were moved. Seven brigades went to Western Timor while the 8th went to Sumba, an island this podcast hasn't visited yet. That meant Flores was now defenseless. The Japanese arrived in May 1942, during their mopping-up campaign for the Lesser Sunda Islands. They landed at Rayo, a town on the north shore of Flores, on May 14th. At Labuan Bajo, on May 16th, and at Larantuka and Endi on May 17th. Thus, Flores was conquered without a struggle, and remained in Japanese hands for the rest of the war. I couldn't find any reports of native resistance to Japanese rule. Likewise, I haven't found any reports of battles from the Indonesian National Revolution.
and in modern Indonesia, it has played the role of a quiet backwater compared with other islands. The present-day Indonesian government puts Flores in East Nusa Tenggara, a province covering 500 islands, including Sumba and West Timor. Sengaja ku sakiti hatimu Ku bercumbu di hadapanmu Sengaja ku sakiti hatimu Seperti kau menyakitiku Sengaja That's all for Komodo and Flores. Before I sign off for this episode, let me tell you about a podcast anniversary. While I was recording this, the date of July 1st came and went. It was on that day in 2016 that I uploaded the introduction episode for this podcast. Yes, that means the podcast is now seven years old. In the past, I proclaimed the birthday of the podcast, and now I will do it again. Happy 7th birthday to the History of Southeast Asia podcast. Next time, we will continue our journey eastward through the Indonesian islands. But the end of it is now in sight. We are approaching western New Guinea and I already recorded an episode on that place, episode 102. Join me to see which island or islands we will visit next. After all, I said we were in the province of East Nusa Tenggara, which has 500 islands within its borders. We live in a world controlled largely by economics, and most of the things we do or the things we desire, cost money. It takes several hours to record each episode, and I don't have as much time to work on them each day as I used to. So the best way to compensate me for this labor of love is with a financial donation. One-time donations are made through PayPal, or you can sign up to make a small monthly donation through Patreon. I have included links to both, on the Blueberry.com page that hosts this episode. Hopefully, in the near future, I can set up accounts on other services besides PayPal, because I know some of you live in countries where PayPal doesn't work. If you can't donate at this time, that's okay. You can also help by spreading the word about the show. Just mention the podcast to anyone who might be interested. If I can do it, so can you. Thank you for listening, and come back when the monsoon winds are blowing right. <laughs>